3: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, T.K. Coleman. Hey,
2: it's good to be here. What's up, everyone?
3: Alabama's here. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team in the studio as well. I was going to ask Nicodemus to call in today, but guess where he is? As of this recording, he is, of course, at Burning Man. Oh! Yes. Wait, that came so quickly, man. Burning Man is already here. I know, right? I feel like it was just yesterday he was telling us incessant, endless stories about Burning Man. Wow. This one
4: time at Burning Man?
3: Like- <laughs> We're gonna bring, As soon wow. as he gets back, he'll be gone next week too. He'll still be at Burning Man next week. But the following week, I guess that would be episode 412, we'll bring him on and do a full debr- debrief. We'll try to understand... Any epiphanies he may have had, any life lessons he had, any injuries he may have received along the way. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) we'll get Nicodemus on here soon. But in the meantime, big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because sing along at home, y'all. Advertisements, Advertisements suck. suck. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or a comment for our show, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording, a crisp, beautiful voice recording right there from your phone to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Perry in Massachusetts. Hi. So I have recently started to wonder if my clutter is an anxiety
5: crutch. I suspect I may be holding on to clutter and decluttering slowly because
6: I find that that to be easier than the big things I want to do. I think I'm afraid of finishing the decluttering because then I'll have to face either the
3: anxiety of emptiness or those big dreams that feel so daunting. I'm
6: anxious about working towards those dreams because of a fear of failure. Do you have any tips for me?
3: Thanks. Harry, this is certainly something that I've gone through in my own life, decluttering, organizing especially, so not even the decluttering part, but organizing as a practice of procrastination. Mm. Mm. I have something to do. In fact, I'm thinking about my daughter who's 10 now, but I remember when she was around, five and anytime we wanted to get her to do something she didn't want to do her favorite phrase was but i've got to do something first i gotta do something it didn't matter she didn't even know what it was but like hey it's time to brush your teeth before bed Or, but i've got to do something first yeah and isn't that what we're talking about here because i think what perry's talking about is hey i'm decluttering kind of slowly Mm. And that can be great because you don't want it to feel frantic, but also, am I procrastinating by putting these tasks in front of me? Oh, man, we see that with calendar clutter all the time, but really it
2: applies to anything. Busyness is a defense mechanism that we erect to protect ourselves from the world's demands. I think about when I worked at the restaurant If you were ever in the weeds and you needed help, someone needs to run food at this table for me, you look around at the faces of your teammates and the people that seem stressed, you leave them alone. They're busy. But the people that seem happy, oh, they can take something to do. And we learn very quickly in life that if we walk around looking too relaxed, looking too free and too happy... Someone might give us something to do. Someone might demand something of us. So we learn how to look busy, sound busy, look stressed, sound occupied. Because if my plate is full, then you'll be less inclined to add something to it. And so that mentality can get into our subconscious and govern so many things. But in the same way that you don't accumulate clutter overnight, you also don't have to deconstruct your life overnight. You don't have to follow all of your dreams and face every single desire and conquer the emptiness that the clutter is covering up all in one shot. Just as you give yourself permission to evaluate things and eliminate them one step at a time, you can do that with your goals and your ambitions and the emptiness that you're wrestling with.
3: And the opposite can also be true. Let's say, I remember when I was obese as a kid, and it took years to become obese. It didn't take the same number of years to lose the weight. And then I became obese with material possessions. So I was metaphorically overstuffed with stuff. I had a lot of excess things and it took years, over a decade Mm. to accumulate all of the stuff, but it didn't take a decade. I didn't have to remove the things one item at a time in perpetuity. Although sometimes that does help starting slow, not just renting a dumpster and throwing all your stuff in it. Now, if you can do that, metaphorically, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. I'd prefer to recycle or, or sell some of the things or donate many of the things and not simply throw them away. But if you could just let go of everything. In our last book, Love People Use Things, which, Perry, I'll send you a copy of Love People Use Things, because there's a great story in there of this couple, the Kirkendalls, whose entire house burned down and they lost everything but they had been simplifying up until that point. And they realized like they were letting go aggressively and that letting go aggressively made room for them to actually lose everything. And it wasn't as devastating as Mm. it would have been six months previous. However, when I think about clutter and decluttering Mm. clutter is debris in the road. It is not a destination. Mm. And the same thing is true with decluttering. Decluttering is not the end result. It's not, your end game. It's not your goal is to simply declutter. The declutter is a tool, the same way a hammer is a tool. Buying the hammer was not the purpose of the hammer. You use the hammer for something. You're going to nail something together, you're going to build a house, you're going to build a shed. You're going to build something with this. Yeah. And with decluttering, you are building a life, not through addition, but subtracting the things yeah. that are in the way. So you're making room for something else. And right now, I think what mm-hmm. Perry's saying is, I don't really know what that is. She said those big dreams, right? Yes. Yes. But are you specific about what those dreams are, or are they really nebulous? Because if you're really specific about what they are, and those dreams are compelling enough, you're going to want to get the stuff out of the way. And no, it may not happen overnight, but it can happen in a month. You can play the 30-day minimalism game. You can download the free calendar at theminimalists.com/slash-game. You could find a friend to play with, because having someone there to also help keep you accountable. Allows you to not declutter so slowly that you're getting in your Mm -hmm. own way. Yeah. I think about this question in terms of my
2: injury. When you have an injury and you want to get back to normal life, to things like working out, there are two extremes you can play. The first extreme is to say, I'm just going to go all in in the way life used to be, high intensity. The other extreme is to say, I'm going to wait until I feel 100% before I do anything that is remotely challenging. But in between that is physical therapy, right? Where you say, I'm not going to wait until I'm 100% before I challenge myself, but I'm also not going to put the pressure on myself to be high, intense, and fully ready today. I'm going to do a little bit at a time. And so what I would say when it comes to this decluttering process, you can map out these extremes in the same areas. You can say, I'm not going to wait until I'm done with the decluttering process to pay attention to my dreams, But I'm also not going to pressure myself to just go all in and make my dreams happen overnight. And so what you can do is while you're decluttering a little bit at a time, you can take five to 10 minutes a day to say, I don't need to do anything about my dreams, but I'm just going to journal about it for five minutes today. I'm just going to sit with it and ask myself, hey, what is it that I have been avoiding and why have I been avoiding that? What might life look like? If I gave myself permission to say yes to something that makes me feel inspired, what are some things that it would give me joy to delve into? And just a little bit at a time, and you'll find that those two things, the decluttering and the dreaming, will work hand in hand, step by step.
3: And finally, I think it's important to have some sort of boundaries in your life. Mm. And the boundaries make sense for several reasons. A, if you don't have any boundaries, you might just keep decluttering, decluttering. Now you think this is the point of what you're doing. But as I said a moment ago, that's not the destination. It is simply a vehicle, or actually the clutter is is debris in the road that's getting in the way, preventing you from getting to your destination. But too often we think... As soon as everything is perfect, then I'll be set for life. I'll be in a fixed state. But the opposite is true. Your life will change, and so the things you need will change. The things that add immense value today may not add value tomorrow or next year. So you have to be willing to continue to Mm. question and write those things down even. Question Is this adding value to my life? And also, you have to be willing to bring new things in if you're certain that it meets your criteria, it matches your boundaries. So we have a minimalist rule book. It's called 16 Rules for Living with Less. You can download it for free. Anyone listening to this can download it for free at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. And really, all those are 16 different boundaries. They're adjustable to get you started on your journey of letting go. Our next question is from Kai.
5: Hi, The Minimalist. This is Kai calling from Vancouver, Canada. Um, I'm a Patreon patron. This is my first time sending my voice memo. Um, I do have questions regarding uh, coupons. I know you talk about this before, uh, but these coupons came in the products I purchased online. Um, usually they're 10, 15, 20% off. So I'm keeping them. They're on my fridge. Um, but every time when I look at them they're such clutter to my eyes I want to get rid of them um but I also want to keep them just in case I need to buy in the future um I know I use the word just in case um, but I have uh, same thing happened to me before um right after I got rid of some of the coupons and I want to buy something from the company and now I have to pay regular price um so what would you do Thank
3: you very much. Kai, what would I do if I were in your shoes? There's something I often think about. If it feels like a no, let it go. Now, how do I know whether or not something feels like a no? Whether it's a material possession, or it's a coupon that a corporation gave me, or it's a relationship, or it's a meeting, or an obligation, could be a friendship. If it feels like a no, Mm. let it go. How do I know that it is a no? Because it's not a hell yes. And hell yes, the spirit of hell yes is, oh, I can't believe I get to own this. I can't believe I get to have this. I can't believe I get to go to this concert with you. I can't believe that I get to have this friendship. Doesn't mean it's going to be flawless. There's going to be tension with anything that we bring into our lives if it doesn't meet our expectations 100% of the time. I'm not talking about your expectations here. What I'm talking about is if it doesn't feel like Hell yeah. Then it's a no. And if it's a no, it's okay to let it go. It doesn't mean that you won't feel a slight twinge of of discomfort and maybe even a little tiny bit of regret for letting Mm. something go. But that is the price of your freedom. It is so freeing to let go of those things that might serve you in some non-existent hypothetical future. You're holding on to something just in case, as you mentioned there. Of course, those are the three most dangerous words in the English language. Now, let me get practical for a moment, and then I'll hand it over to TK, and we can get even more philosophical here. But practically— If I were in your shoes, I would let these coupons go. But if I also felt like, yeah, these aren't just in case. There are a few I'm certain I'm going to use just for when. And I knew that I wanted to use them. I'd simply take photos of them and I'd have them available. And if I needed to print them back out, I could. Also keep in mind, usually these coupons have an expiration date written on them. Now, that expiration date isn't real. It's manufactured to create a sense of urgency in you because they want you to buy something this quarter because it helps their fiscal quarter. It helps their profitability. And they, they have a fiduciary responsibility to increase their profits. Yeah. And the way they do that is to add an expiration date to your coupons. Now, what would I truly do personally as JFM? I would get rid of them. I don't use coupons. I'm not saying that you shouldn't use coupons, but the reason I don't use coupons has nothing to do with saving money is saving my sanity. The psychological clutter that is caused by, oh, I should hold on to this little trinket. We, we pretend yeah. that coupons are savings vouchers from a benevolent <laughs> corporation. Yeah, And, oh, they want me to save money. How kind is this corporation? But the truth is, they want me to spend my money with them. And I'm okay with spending my money, but I don't like being pressured into spending my money. So would I buy it at full price? If so, great. I'll still buy it at full price. Now, if there's a discount at the register and they say, hey, we'll give you five bucks off right now. Cool. I'm not going to turn down your five dollars. But the mental clutter, the emotional clutter and the psychological clutter that is caused by coupons for me, it's just not worth it. Yeah. You know, it's
2: interesting. Have you ever uh, bought anything and you go to the register and you don't have one and someone says, oh, there's a coupon for this? Yes. And they give it to you, you know. Uh, Anyway, you know, our relationship with things is so funny because all of the minimalism dilemmas boil down to this sense of, hey, I really hate having this thing. Also, I really want to keep this thing. <laughs> which, which one of those desires do I choose to be loyal to? And it's not always easy to know which because sometimes what we really want is to keep the thing and we just feel guilty about what we really want. And other times we really want to get rid of the thing, but we feel guilty about the story we'd have to tell if we got rid of it. So what do you do? Well, if you had said, I have this neat little drawer in my kitchen. And I keep my coupons in there just in case I need them. And I just love having that space. What do you guys think? There would be nothing we could possibly say other than enjoy. Sounds like you're doing something that you love. But that's not what you said. You said, I don't want to keep them. I want to get rid of these things. They're clutter. And you probably don't want to get rid of them because you have TV cameras broadcasting your refrigerator on the news every night saying, look at this person with all of these coupons. They're not a good minimalist. It's bothering you in some kind of way. And so the question I would ask is, what is your clutter costing you? I would sit with that for a minute. Not because... Coupons are so important that you should spend hours thinking about them, but because problems tend to manifest in a variety of different ways. And when you take the time to understand the principles that underlie one problem, you get the chance to apply that wisdom to many other things. And so I would ask with this particular instance, what is this clutter costing me? And is that worth the 20 cents? You know, when I travel, man, I observe a very interesting thing. People compromise their peace in all sorts of ways to save. 30 seconds here, 60 seconds there, and I don't condemn it. It's totally all right. But one thing I've done to really improve my quality of life is I've made up my mind that unless I am late for a meeting and I'm gonna to rush to get somewhere, I am not gonna abandon my quality of life just to save 30 seconds. So when I come down from a flight and you know I'm, I'm going through security and there's someone, you know uh, not, not coming down from a flight, but going to a flight and I'm going through security and there's someone racing me and the only way to get in line in front of them is to compete and to rush them. If I'm not late for my flight, I'm gonna let them be the one to win that 30 seconds. And I'm just gonna enjoy my life and enjoy the peace of traveling light. And I think that's something that we can apply to life as well. There are so many opportunities to save 20 cents here, to save two bucks there, to save two minutes. But what are you giving up for that opportunity? If you're giving up your peace of mind, is that, is that your price? Is that the price of your soul? Yeah, I gave up my
3: peace of mind because I wanted to save 20 cents. I don't <laughs> think $20. it's worth it. $20. Yeah. You know, what's the price of your peace of mind? Oh, it's so good. You're reminding me of three things. One, recently, while I was down here in LA, my wife was up in Ohio, and our daughter was out of town and she was like, hey, is it okay with you if I get rid of some things this week? And of course, me being the good minimalist that I am, I said, well, yeah, of course, that sounds great, right? Yeah. We're constantly antagonizing and questioning our our material possessions. What are you doing here? Oh, do I I, I get value from that. Okay. But I always want to interrogate My things. And that's what Perry's or that's what Kai is doing here with these coupons. She's interrogating them right now. And bravo for that. And so Bex texts me and she's like, hey, uh, is it okay if I get rid of some things around the house? And I say, yeah, that sounds great. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And then, of course, I get home and there's a little box by the curb because in our neighborhood. We simply have this like donation system. People come by and they just leave stuff on the curb and people pick through it and they take what they want. And it's a beautiful thing. But I get there and I'm like, oh, wait, I didn't know she was getting rid of this. I didn't know she was getting rid of this. Uh Uh-oh. But then I said, hey, this is is the cost that I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to let go of some things that I thought I wanted to keep, but she didn't want them here. And I can still hold on to it in my mind. And that's going to make me more miserable, even though the thing is gone now. It's on our curve. I'm not going to take it back in the house at this point. Mm-hmm. But I realized that, oh, I can let go of any of these any of these things. Even the things that I think that I want, I can let go of those. And even that as a practice, it stretches my comfort or my discomfort zone. And that is a place from which we grow. And so letting go of some of the things that we're holding on to mm-hmm. just in case even things that you know you will use or likely are going to use in the future. Man, that is almost a spiritual practice. It's not asceticism so much as it is questioning the things that you get value from. I was just talking to my brother in Chicago this past weekend
2: who owns an uh, apartment building there, and he had a hoarder who just recently moved out. This person um, rented one of those huge blue colored construction uh, garbage bins and filled it up completely. He personally took out about 20 bags. This person moved and took a lot of their stuff. And this place is still filled with days of work. He described so many things that were astonishing. This person is a true hoarder. Uh, One of the things he described is he says there was one room where it was like a room full in in like a, a two bedroom apartment, a room full of condiments, like fully packaged, never opened. Barbecue sauce, seasonings, salt, pepper, all these types of things. And he says, this person just had this compulsion. They see something, it's a deal and they buy it. So he calls Salvation Army and they're like, hey, like we don't serve that area. He calls some other places. They're like, ah, we're not taking anything for a few weeks. And so he goes in there to try to gather some of the things to maybe see what he can throw away, what he can give away. And as he's looking through things, that demon tempts him. He says, well, I can't throw this away. This is valuable. I can't, maybe I should take this home and keep it in my home. And that's the trickiness with clutter. It has a way of saying, hey, You don't want to waste me, do you? And then we say, no, I don't want to waste you. And then that demon says, good, let me live in your home so I can waste your peace of mind. I can waste your happiness. I can waste your life energy. I can waste your creativity all in the name of you not being a wasteful person. But as I've said before, You better trash that stuff before it trashes your life. You gotta let go of the guilt that says, it would be wasteful of me to get rid of something, therefore I'm going to consume something that isn't healthy for me, that isn't good for me. I'm not saying you should mindlessly throw things away, but take the time, do the work to find somewhere, someone that you can give that away to so that you're not wasting your life in the name of being resourceful.
3: Tick-tock that, Danny Unknown. My goodness. Uh, two things that come to mind here. Practically, you just mentioned the things that they're collecting, like condiments and expired things, right? And we talked a moment ago about how the coupons themselves expire as yeah. well, right? But I'm also thinking that the discount doesn't actually expire if you know how to ask for it. My mm. friend Julian Smith, who's been on this podcast before, we've done some tour stops with him. And I wrote a blog post with him years ago, but he He taught me this really valuable life lesson, this experiment. For one year, one day a week, no matter what you're buying that day, he had me negotiate for it. Now, that could be something as simple as you're at Starbucks, and the coffee's $2.85. And to say, hey, can I get a discount on that? Now, most of the time, you would think they'd be like, well, no, we can't. Almost always, they say yes. Even at the grocery store, I've been told, oh yeah, I, could, I got a coupon or whatever. And what you're realizing here is that those coupons you're holding onto aren't the only way to save money. The easiest way to save money is to not spend it in the first place. Yeah. Don't buy the things you don't need to impress people you don't know or don't like. Yeah, That's a great way to save money. But beyond that, you can be at the checkout line at Target and you can ask for a discount. What's the worst thing they're going to say to you? No. Oh, sorry, I can't do that where they'll just smile and laugh or they'll look confused. Yeah. But it also makes you more confident in your purchasing experience. Now, also, you'll probably notice whenever I'm talking to people at like a cashier at a, at a grocery store or at a restaurant somewhere, I'm talking to someone, I'm fairly gregarious. It came out of that experiment because I was forced to push through the discomfort of, all right, I'm going to ask them for a discount. And it made it so much easier to talk to people because you become you become acquainted with rejection. And that rejection becomes a muscle, that discomfort that you experience, and it becomes so much easier to actually get the discount and I don't have to cling to any sort of coupon. One last thing. I was at a concert last night. I surprised my wife with Sigur who's our favorite band. They're amazing. They're from Iceland. Jónzi, he is the lead singer of the band and he is like mozart with michael jackson's voice that's the best way i can describe him this beautiful falsetto they had a 50-piece orchestra on the stage it was unbelievable and this woman walks up to me during the intermission her name was jessica and she walks up she goes i saw you here and i just knew it was my sign to get my shit together wow (laughs)
4: Good on you, Jessica.
3: <laughs> hey, that's awesome, man. And I want to say to Kai, and I want to say to anyone listening to this, maybe this is your sign to get your shit together. If it's feeling right now like you're overwhelmed by material possessions, or you feel like, oh, I've been meaning to declutter. I've been meaning to let go. I've been meaning to simplify my life. Maybe this is your sign. It's okay. To let go. If it feels like a no,
2: let it go. And this is your time to get your shit together, not because you're a screw up who would be a bad person if you didn't get your shit together, but because you are beautiful and brilliant more than you can imagine. And it's time for you to start saying yes to that and time to start getting rid of the stuff that's keeping you from doing that.
3: Amen. Yeah. Question here from Michaela.
1: Hi guys, my name is Michaela. and I'm calling from Washington, D.C., So I'm suddenly at the age where all of a sudden, all of my friends are getting married and my partner and I are actually starting to plan our wedding. Um, Minimalism has been an important tool in my life and I'm wondering how I can best follow the tenets of minimalism while also participating in things like buying gifts and bridesmaid dresses and planning my own wedding. Um, I'm not finding a lot of information out there and your guys' input would be very valuable. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
3: I think about consumption, and we all know that consumption is not the problem, although sometimes people treat it like the problem when they discover minimalism or simplifying is, oh, buying things then must be bad. And thus, having a wedding that requires material goods also must be bad. Let me shun all of that. And by the way, if you want to shun that and do a non-traditional wedding, that's great. But consumption is not the problem. Consumerism is the problem. What is consumerism? Consumerism is the ideology that buying things is going to make you whole, complete, or it'll make you happy. And we often do that with wedding, with weddings, our wedding. It's part of the wedding industrial complex, right? I must follow this template in order to be fulfilled, But who sold you that temple? There's nothing wrong with having a ceremony because what are you actually doing when you have a wedding? You're celebrating this union between two people. You're coming together. You're bringing your friends, your family, your loved ones all together. And it's supposed to be this beautiful celebration. But quite often people recognize that the six months or the year that leads up to that is some of the most stressful times of their lives. They're spending so much money on the things they're supposed to do. Well, that is consumerism. You don't have to do that. You can spend money on a wedding and you can do so in a way that comports with your values. Not what everyone else is telling you to value, but what you actually want to make your day special.
2: Yeah. You know, there, there are two dimensions to this whole, how do I go into an environment where people don't think like me and and represent what it is I stand for? Uh, The first dimension is you're going to go into a space and you're going to see people making themselves look and feel happy by doing all sorts of things that you find it healthy to say no to. And you've got to decide, am I going to condemn them? Am I going to try to preach to them? Am I going to convert them? Or am I going to allow them the space to be who they are and answer the questions that they actually ask? share the insights and the information that they're actually interested in. If you can just master that part, it becomes so much easier to live the life that is truly yours because most of the hardship when it comes to being around people who are different is just resenting them for not making it easier for us to follow the path that we need to follow. If I'm not eating ice cream anymore, Well, I resent you for sitting there daring to enjoy some ice cream in my face when I can't have it. Like, no, own your path. You can have it. You're choosing not to have it because you found a way that's better for you. Let that person be because if you're trying to convert everybody who's unlike you, you're gonna lose the energy that needs to go into what it means for you to live your best life. The second aspect is, how do I represent when the people may not want to hear me talk about it? And the best way to do that is to simply show up with the beauty of your own simplicity without needing to describe what it is you're doing, unless you're asked the quality of gifts that you buy, the amount of thought that you put into the gift. I'm telling you now people will celebrate and be impressed by the most expensive gifts, but the ones they will remember 10 years from now are the ones that have thought behind them. You know, all the people out there who are still holding on to some letter, that was written to you by someone that thought you were cute in high school, even though you don't like them today, you haven't talked to them in 20 years, you don't care anything about them. You know exactly what I mean. It means something when another human being says, hey, I thought about you so deeply that I poured 20 minutes into my life to write something that can't be mass produced, to create something that's not plastic. And I think if you show up in that way by doing what's meaningful to you, you represent your philosophy in the best possible way. And that's the kind of thing that creates the curiosity that makes people come asking about the way you live.
3: Yeah, that's so good. You also remember the gifts that are really bad, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember my, my first wedding, I had three bread makers as gifts. <laughs> Two problems with that. One is I didn't have on the registry a bread maker at all
4: they just decided that you needed you you had to have a bread maker
3: yes and three people decided three this people well the second bigger problem is i don't eat bread <laughs> <laughs> and so of course i remember that because it's like handing me something to donate to someone else i became their and by the way they, i would have been much better if they just gave me the money for that now were their intentions good sure But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm. And the road to hell is paved with consumerism that makes us feel like we're doing the right thing, the thing that we should do, right? And, oh, you know, I'm going to this wedding. I should get them a gift. What do people get for weddings? I guess bread makers, right? And so here you go. Here's a bread maker. I did my bare minimum. Here you go. How does that make me feel knowing that you did the bare minimum? No, because that's not even actually the bare minimum. The bare minimum would have been to do nothing. You didn't have to get me a gift. And I would have actually preferred that to a bread maker because now you wasted your money. And now I have to do something with these three bread makers. And we held on to one of them for a period of time. I think we used it once ever, but I don't eat bread. So it just sat in a cabinet. And so you handed me clutter effectively. And what does that mean? For me, it means there are infinite possibilities. There are infinite possibilities with respect to gift giving. The best gifts are given with intentionality. You buy something deliberately because you're fairly certain that person's going to get value from the thing. However, there are also possibilities, infinite possibilities with respect to your wedding that you're planning. It is true that you can go down to the courthouse and sign a piece of paper and say, I do. And now you are married, right? That's a possibility. Let's put that on the table. What else is a possibility? Well, Elvis can marry us in Vegas next weekend. <laughs> that is a possibility. Here's another possibility you could spend $200,000 on a giant wedding with all of your friends there, that's a possibility. What is your outcome here? What do you want to accomplish? For me, it's about celebrating this union. And for me, it's also about not being stressed out or anxious or overwhelmed with the process. And if you put 10 or 15 possibilities on the table, and you and your significant other, your fiance, are talking about these possibilities, quickly you'll cross them out. And you might say, you know what? The Elvis thing seems stupid to me at first, but wouldn't that be a hilarious story that we'd be able to tell? Yeah. Okay. I like this. All right. What other possibilities seemed absurd? Well, this one, $200,000 wedding doesn't seem absurd because everyone else wants to do this thing, but it's absurd to me. I don't want to spend this kind of money on that. I'd rather allocate those resources in a different way. Yeah. So I'm going to take that off the table. And as soon as you get all the possibilities on the table, you'll realize that some of these possibilities were not defined by you. They're not something you're interested in at all. They're defined by someone else. They've handed you your shoulds. They've handed you your possibilities. And you can remove those from the table. It's like a it's a type of possibility decluttering.
2: Yeah. Sometimes we play by rules based on the assumptions we make about other people's expectations. When those other people really aren't requiring it us it of us at all. So for instance, maybe you know, I come home and, and my wife says, How was work today? And I respond to that question by saying, Oh, you know what? Can I can I tell you about something I heard on the radio on my way home? You know what her response is? It's never, no. I asked you about work. Her response is yeah tell me why because the question is not a rule that i need to play by it's a representation of her desire to connect and as long as we're connecting the goal of the question is satisfied even if i'm not directly answering it and in a similar way, when we go to weddings and parties, the goal is to connect. The goal is to commemorate a life, to celebrate a moment, to let people know that we love them, but we play by all of these different sorts of rules and we don't give ourselves permission to color outside of the lines. At the end of the day, people want a moment that's going to make them feel alive, a moment that's going to make them feel like they, they have a memory that will live inside of them forever. And there are many ways you can create those kinds of experiences. You don't always have to buy something. It's a representation of our desire to connect with one another. Gifts are not rules that we have to play
3: by. And so the question behind that is, how can I best connect with my fiance? How can I best connect with my guests? how can I best connect with myself? Because I think quite often what happens is the wedding industrial complex disconnects us from our own well-being, from our own state of autonomy. And I feel like I have to do this thing and, oh, it becomes a slog. It's the exact opposite of the intention of the wedding in the first place. Also, Michaela, we did a whole episode about minimalist weddings with Jessica Bishop, we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to go listen to that because there are some really great practical tips there on exactly how you can have your own minimalist wedding that fits your life, your desires, and you don't have to follow the template of everyone else's wedding in order to have a joyous celebration with the people you love. Another question here. This one is from Mike. Hi, this is
1: Mike in Peterburg, Wisconsin. I wanted to call and ask about childhood trauma and how to prepare my foster son for the trauma that he may face when he is removed from our home. My wife and I went through two miscarriages in 2020 just before the pandemic began. Our fertility journey continues to this day. Later in 2020, we decided to start a foster home with the hopes of starting a family, but realized quickly that this wasn't the best idea we've ever had. Through the foster care system, we have met two wonderful children one that is still in our our house to this day. Unfortunately, we have to deal with the day-to-day of the foster care system, the biological parents, and the stresses that are brought on by our abundance of love for these children. The main reason I'm bringing this up is when listening to your podcast, Josh and Ryan have talked about childhood trauma that they faced. I was wondering if you ever thought about talking about foster care as well, continuing to talk about childhood trauma on your podcast. I'm interested in learning more about how the two of you have coped with the stress and past trauma from childhood and how have you have left it behind you. I want to prepare my foster son for the childhood trauma that he may face if he ever leaves their home.
3: Mike, what a thoughtful question. And yes, it's true. I had a pretty crappy childhood and I think there's a lot of trauma associated with that, but I don't think people I don't think that's relegated only to people who grow up in a situation in which I grew up in. Mm. There are people, who are middle class and rich people who have just as much, if not more, trauma. And so I'm going to lean on our friend, Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's been on the podcast a few times. And I have this thread from her that discusses what trauma is. And so maybe, TK, you and I can unpack this together. Trauma is stored in the body and revealed in relationships. Here's what that means. Trauma happens when we experience something that overwhelms our capacity to cope. And trauma isn't just about what we experience. It's also about what we don't experience, like connection, love, belonging, acceptance. When we experience something traumatic, our level of support matters. For example, after the trauma-inducing event, did we have someone who listened to us? accepted us, and who allowed us to feel however we felt? Or did we experience rejection, abandonment, gaslighting, or invalidation? If we didn't, we internalize beliefs like, no one cares. I'm unworthy. Everyone will leave me. Let's pause on that for a moment. Because, Mike, when you're talking about, your foster son, I think this is just trauma with kids in general. They often are responding to something because, as Nicole said here, it's much more about, well, trauma happens when we experience something that overwhelms our capacity to cope. And so, are we creating an environment that it's difficult for our children to cope? And if so, there's probably going to be some trauma. Return to text here. When we have a trauma response, we go into Fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Which fawn is to appease people, right? Oh, you know what? I'm going to people please as a trauma response. That is a response to trauma. I can't figure out how to cope with this. So maybe if I just make you happy, Dad, then then uh, uh, you'll love me, right? Mm. Trauma becomes stored within the body. The way we breathe, make eye contact, our posture our coping mechanisms, and our habitual emotional responses. Note, these are unconscious. We don't think about these things. They're instinctual. Most traumatic experiences happen in relationships, physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, parentification, which is when we become a parent to our parent, addiction, witnessing dysfunctional relationships, etc. So, Trauma reveals itself within relationships. Because our sense of trust and safety was betrayed, we tend to be insecurely attached. Meaning, we feel people will always hurt, betray, or abandon us in some way. Let's rewind that real quick. Because our sense of trust and safety was betrayed, we tend to be insecurely attached. So, Mm. If you, want your, if you want your kid to avoid trauma, you want to make sure that there's trust and safety mm. is not betrayed. Because if you're betraying their trust, if you're betraying someone's safety, they're going to be traumatized by that. Trauma reveals itself in relationships by... Pushing people away when they get too close. Assuming everyone has negative intentions. Unconsciously sabotaging relationships. Staying with partners who are hurtful or harmful. That's what happens when we are traumatized. We push people away. We assume the worst in everyone. We unconsciously sabotage relationships, the people we love, we harm them, or we stay with people who are harmful to us. Mm. And it just perpetuates the trauma because it makes it difficult to cope. Mm. Because we believe we can change other people, betraying our own needs to get partner's love or approval, enabling abusive or, addict- or addictive partners, finding partners who shame, belittle, or mock us, seeking emotionally unavailable partners. So a traumatized person will often, well, betray their own needs to meet the needs of someone else. And sometimes we do it with this veneer of virtue, right? We say, oh, I'm just sacrificing for you. Everyone has to make a compromise, right? That could be true. But if you're sacrificing your values, you're compromising your values, then, well, you're not going to get what you want because you are betraying yourself. You might also find a partner who tries to shame or belittle you in a way that gives you a sense of, a weird sense of certainty, right? Oh, I'm certain I can at least feel this way, right? Mm. It's better than the uncertainty I feel from the trauma. We have a subconscious de- desire to repeat or recreate our childhood dynamics. We do this in attempt to correct or fix our past experiences. This is why understanding and processing your past trauma is important, because we tend to relive it in cycles, also known as generational trauma. We relive it in cycles. Once we're aware of generational trauma patterns, we can begin to heal them. We can learn healthy communication, healthy coping mechanisms, ways to regulate our emotions, ways to hold space for other people's emotions, how to set boundaries, and how to honor the boundaries of others. Dr. Nicole with
2: the gold. Mm. Always. I really love that line about the, the role of understanding and processing past trauma. I think one question that's worth asking and sitting with and not answering too quickly is, are there any non-traumatized human beings? I'm not comfortable with the fast answer to that question. I think about a story I've told you before. When I was in college, my first year, I was having chest pains. I was concerned too young for that. And my father took me to the ER. And after running some tests and spending some time there, the doctor said to me, after asking several questions and having some conversation with me, he says, it's stress. The good news is you don't have heart trouble, but you're dealing with a lot of stress. I was like, but doctor, I'm not stressed. I love my life. I'm doing well. All my thoughts are positive. I'm self-determined. And he says, that's not what stress is. Stress isn't about you matching some stereotype that you have about people who are stressed. Some people manifest stress by freaking out. Some people manifest stress by looking very, you know, like flustered. But for most of us, our body tells the story. It's like, I can look at your body and I can see the tension and I can see the signs. Your body is saying, you are doing things to me that I simply cannot handle. And just because you're telling yourself a lot of positive thoughts about it and you've got some pleasant emotions going on, doesn't mean you're not stressed. In a similar way, being traumatized is different from feeling traumatized. Being traumatized is different from thinking of yourself as the kind of person who's capable of going through trauma. And many people don't like to have that label applied to them because they have stereotypes about that word that makes them feel defensive about it. It makes them feel like, well, wait a minute, I would have to tell a story about myself to admit that I have been traumatized and I don't like that story. But the fact of the matter is, to be human means to undergo trauma. And in many cases, the traumas that we undergo are traumas that we don't even recognize we're going through, but our body has ways of keeping that score. And so part of this question involves the inevitability of future trauma. You know, we can give tips on how to avoid situations that can lead to trauma. But one of the difficult things about parenthood is, you know, there are forms of trauma that will be inevitable for your child and you can't do anything to stop it. Someone's going to break their heart. Someone's going to lie to them. Someone's not going to be good to them. And you can't always predict how it's going to happen. And so one of the best ways to prepare children for the inevitability of future trauma is by recognizing in the present areas where they have already been traumatized and helping them learn how to process that, helping them see what support looks like, what a healthy response looks like. Because ultimately when we move forward into the future and we encounter those traumas, they're going to become past traumas and we will need to process them. And that's something you can teach them now without waiting for the inevitable traumas to happen.
3: What are you are talking about here, trauma responses? And I wanna end this question with another Tweet Storm from Dr. Nicole LaPera. By the way, we'll put links to both of these tweet threads in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can read them on your own. You can share them with others if you'd like. Let's talk about trauma responses. A trauma response is a habitual subconscious survival adaptation used when we experience a real or perceived threat. I think that's key there. It can also be a perceived threat. Most of our threats, most of the things we fear are not actual threats. As adults, it's like, oh, I fear uh, uh, not having enough things just in case I need them. But that's not a real fear. That's just a worry. It's a rumination. But trauma can result from that even. A perceived threat is a threat that isn't actually in the environment. It's a threat that comes from our perception and is based on our past experiences for example, research shows that people who've experienced childhood maltreatment interpret neutral facial expressions as hostile or negative. So think about that. Think about Nicodemus. And if he was here, I'm sure he'd talk about this. And he's talked about it on the podcast before. But his stepdad used to beat the hell out of him. I mean, literally, like on the floor kicking him sort of thing. I mean, true abuse. And... Um, man, I think even Ryan will have like, if you have a neutral facial expression, he might interpret that not necessarily as hostile, but as this person doesn't like me. If you're just listening intently Mm -hmm. to him, for some reason, something might click and it has something to do with that trauma response from his childhood. Wow. Continuing the tweet here. Threats in our environment don't just mean threats to our lives, physical attack, violence, etc. Threats are perceived any time we might experience a loss of connection. If we experienced a loss of connection to a parent figure as a child on a regular basis, we are more sensitive to that loss of connection. So, your stepson, Mike, or anyone else listening to this, if you have kids and they don't feel connected to you, they may not feel safe. In the future. Example, as a child, Ali had a father who had explosive anger. He would scream, shame her, and tell her he never wanted to see her face again. Mm. Man. Ali was now has a trauma response anytime she feels people pulling away. Anytime someone expresses anger, even healthy anger or anytime she feels as though she's upset someone. Her habitual trauma response is fawning, or people-pleasing, in order to keep herself safe and to never experience the shame, rejection, and abandonment she experienced as a child. There are four main trauma responses. Fight, which is yell or become aggressive. Flight, which is... Runaway, avoidance, ghosting someone can be a a trauma response. Freeze, that's disassociation. I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to freeze. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to run. I don't know what to do. I just freeze. And then fourth is fawn. You're going to appease people. You're going to people please. I'm going to make you happy. And if I can make you happy enough, then maybe somehow via osmosis, you'll be Hmm. happy with me. And therefore, I will be happy as well. Nicole goes on to say, the most common post-traumatic emotion we experience is anger, guilt, shame, and sadness. Research shows that these emotions increase after the trauma. Ultimately, a trauma response is an act of self-protection against threat of disconnection and intense internal emotions that come from the original trauma experience. Original trauma experiences create hypervigilance or the extreme awareness and attention to our environment to avoid threats. Here's an example of hypervigilance. Janet grew up in a home with parents who were in a hostile, dysfunctional relationship. The environment was chaotic, and she often hid in her room from her parents during explosive fights. As an adult, she's hypervigilant hyper attuned to her environment, always scanning the room for what people are thinking or feeling about her. She's not at ease in social settings and startles easily. I I have a lot of that in my own life. I'm Mm. constantly scanning. I grew up in a, I was a super violent neighborhood, but there was some dangers there. And I'm constantly wondering if I'm about to be attacked or, or, um, aggressed toward, right? And, It is a traumatic response to a childhood, repeat childhood trauma that didn't feel traumatic at the time. It felt completely normal. And I think that's the thing to think about here. Usually our traumas feel completely normal in that particular situation. But when we pan out over a protracted time period, you realize like, oh, that's not normal at all. This is Janet's survival mechanism. Growing up in an unpredictable environment, her brain scans the environment in an attempt to keep her safe. She's never had a secure, safe connection. As a child, and in a social settings, she feels like she must protect herself. It's helpful to understand that trauma responses are simply adaptations and are ways we learn to stay safe in unsafe environments. By learning our triggers, how to self-soothe, and by practicing compassion, we can practice self-care during and after a trauma response. We can also be vulnerable and communicate slash share our responses with the people we care about. This allows us to ask for support when we need it. I'm really anxious or overwhelmed right now. Can you give me a hug? Or hey. I just really need some space Mm -hmm. right now. Uh, You know,
2: because our traumatic responses are often directed at other people because other people often trigger those traumatic responses, it can be easy to think that trauma by definition is based on what other people do to you. But trauma doesn't have to involve what other people do to you. You can be traumatized by a natural disaster, uh, an unexpected illness an untimely death you could be getting on the freeway driving in ice and your car loses control and you feel fear for 10 seconds that you're going to die and you get out of the situation and although that situation transpired in 10 seconds it stays in your body in your subconscious for the next 10 years your body remembers that there are all sorts of ways that we can be traumatized and When it comes to children in the foster care system, many of them have been traumatized before they can even learn to speak. And it can be easy to underestimate the complexity that is involved in learning how to articulate what you feel, learning how to even recognize what you feel, learning how to give words to your emotions and your needs. And we teach babies things like, hey, it's time to evolve into saying, I need something to drink, rather than relying on crying to get everything you need. But that's a very complex thing. And in many cases, as adults, we still rely on various forms of socially acceptable crying to get our needs met because no one ever taught us how to gesture, how to word things, how to verbalize things in a way that gets what we need. And so, one of the best things you can do for your children in preparing them is teach them the art of sitting with themselves. Teach them the art of recognizing what they feel and articulating it and do it with things that aren't even about the trauma. Because although you wanna be available for that, you don't always have to be direct. You can do it with little things that are easy from the things that they think are funny, the things that they like, the things that make them angry, just teaching them how to talk about it. Um, that's, that's such a valuable thing and is even rare among many adults.
3: Yeah, totally agree. Well, we'll put a link to both of those tweets in the show notes, com slash podcast. You can read those, you can share them, you can print them out like I did and maybe even put it up on your, your vision board so that, you know, not to traumatize. In fact, I often say about my daughter, it's like my number one job as a parent is to not screw her up. Yeah. And I'm going to fail at that, I know for sure, but that is the North Star, the beacon by which I aspire is to screw her up as little as possible, to not traumatize her in ways that are avoidable, but also understanding that she will be traumatized by something at some point in time, whether it's a mistake that I made or some situation she got into outside of the home. Yeah we will always be traumatized. And I think about that question you asked earlier, is there anyone who is not traumatized? There might be a few savants of living, the Osho's of the world, the Anthony DeMello's, and even they might have been traumatized and they've been able to completely let it go and no longer have trauma responses. But even they were likely traumatized at some point in time. Mm. I think that's important to keep in perspective here because what happens is, oh, I guess I'm just a traumatized person. I look around and I guess Mallory doesn't, she doesn't seem like she's traumatized. And of course, Mm. Danny's not traumatized. He's perfect. (laughs) Uh, Professor Sean, I don't know, but he's from Youngstown. He's definitely traumatized. (laughs) The opposite
2: is equally dangerous too, right? Clearly it's unhealthy. If you are traumatized and you think you are the only person in the universe who knows trauma, that alienates you from many people who could support you and help you find coping mechanisms and solutions. But the opposite is also dangerous. To have been traumatized and to think of yourself as one who is above trauma, as if that's some kind of virtue, that also disconnects you from the world in a way that is self-stultifying. And I think what happens is that Terms like victimhood get so politicized because we're afraid that some people are going to pretend to be victims in areas where they're not truly victims in order to get some kind of victim benefit. And so what we do is we, we, we say, well, I'm, I'm no victim and you shouldn't be a victim either. But if you're not capable of acknowledging that there are inconveniences in your life due to things that you haven't done, I got news for you. You're a patsy. That's what you are. You're a patsy because there are people in this world that will send inconveniences into your life. And part of being a a strategic thinker, part of being someone who does take personal responsibility for their life means that you don't foolishly take responsibility for idiotic things. If someone commits a murder, I'm not taking responsibility for that. I'm gonna acknowledge that I didn't do it. There's difficulty in the world created by someone who isn't me. So responsibility doesn't mean I deny that things are ever done to me. But what it means is I choose to cope with that in healthful ways by taking ownership of the results I want to create in life. And so you got to be able to say, look, I've been through something. I've been hurt. I've been wounded and I'm not going to give up, but I'm not going to buy into this lie that says I would be a more noble person
3: had I not been through pain. That's what makes me human. It's fall on. Although, if you grew up in the suburbs, you probably don't have any trauma, right?
4: No, definitely not.
3: (laughs) Of course not. Malabama, let's tune into some social media questions here. Let's uh, let's talk to Stacy. She has a question from X.
4: Did you guys ever experience fatigue after getting rid of your personal items? Did certain items impact you more than others?
3: Well, I've never regretted letting go, but Mm -hmm. if I did, I'd let go of the regret. (laughs) Now, there's... I don't really understand the fatigue. Quite often, the fatigue comes from, oh, there's so much to let go here. I feel like I've been decluttering for weeks and there's still more to get rid of. We talked about this a bit earlier. It took me a decade plus to become obese And it took me a decade plus to become materially obese with my material possessions, excess stuff in my life. But it didn't take a decade to lose the weight on my body. And it didn't take a decade to lose the weight in my home Mm. to get rid of the things. But it can feel tiring if you feel like you're doing too much. However, if you know why you're doing it, It's like, I know, Danny, you were uh, helping someone run a hundred mile ultra marathon recently, hundred miles. And so they say what the real race starts around mile 60, right? And what's amazing about that is if you just had to run and run and run, you didn't know what the end game was. I don't think most people would make it were running that. They wouldn't make mm. it to mile marker 60, let alone 100, wow. because they don't know why they're doing it. They don't know the end point. They don't know where they're going. If it's just, you better run, you better run, you better run. What is any of this for? And I would say the same mm. thing is true with letting go of your stuff. What are you doing this for? Why are you letting go? Because that makes the fatigue no longer a Oh, I can't believe I have to do this. It's the same fatigue you get from going to the gym. Like, wow, I sure am fatigued, though isn't this awesome? I feel great. It's that really good kind of fatigue, that good kind of tired from letting go. And and you don't always
2: have to be super duper philosophical about finding your why. Not every why is a cosmic level question. Sometimes you have the freedom to make it up. A part of what makes us unique as human beings is we have the power to assign meaning to things in a way that is arbitrary, but such an expression of our creativity that it still adds joy to our lives. You take the marathon. If someone's running 26 miles or 30 miles, whatever it is, that marker doesn't exist in nature nature doesn't have some line that says this is the 30 mile point and it's meaningful to run up until this point. We literally make that up and yet it becomes meaningful by the very fact that we make it up because it's a declaration of our power to assign value to something and say it matters because I choose it to matter. It matters because it brings me joy and I commit to that. And so when you're setting these boundaries and you're determining your why, You don't have to look to the heavens for every single decision you make and say, hey, tell me what cereal I should eat. Tell me what brand of water should I buy? Like sometimes you get to make it up and that's part of the joy of life.
3: The second part of her question here was, did certain items impact you more than others? And I just want to answer that head on. Yeah. Strangely, I think one of the easiest things to let go of are clothes because the average American, even if they're not just simply decluttering, they throw away over 80 pounds of clothing every Mm -hmm. year. And that just means we're consuming so many clothes. And I think one of the reasons we do that is so we can form an identity. Here's who I am as a person. And this is a shortcut to our identity. Uh, The Minimalist second book, Everything That Remains, the first line of that is our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. And... It's that whole scene that happens at the beginning of that book, which is coming up on its 10-year anniversary now. It was a corporate uh, scenario, and I was wearing my costume, my suit and tie, and this is who I am as a person. And so I think anything that is tied into our identity, this is who I am, becomes more difficult because it feels like what? I'm giving away a piece of me. It's like I'm chopping my arm Mm. off if I get rid of this suit or these shoes. Even though I have 10 pairs of these shoes, even getting rid of one is getting rid Mm. of a piece of me. And so what is your identity tied up in? Those are often the things I wouldn't start with. Start with the things you're like, oh, I don't even like these things. Why am I holding on to all these old coupons or magazines or DVDs or VHSs? I don't even like them. They're in the way. That's a great place to start, especially if you're doing something like the the 30-day minimalism game. You're just letting go of something, but then you eventually hit a roadblock. Mm. Ah. I didn't realize, but I feel like this is a piece of me. Here's the good news. None of those material possessions are you. Yes, your material possessions can enhance your life. They can amplify your well-being. They can augment your life in meaningful ways, but they are not you. You are complete in an empty room. And therefore, when you're in an empty room and you surround yourself with things, they better be things that enhance, augment, or amplify your life. Otherwise, they're just clutter. Otherwise, they just get in the way. I have a
2: question for you about a form of fatigue that I don't know if this question is getting at, but it's, it's one, one possible interpretation. There are certain forms of letting go that require perhaps so much confrontation or so much sacrifice that they leave you feeling like, I've got nothing left. I laid everything on the line in order to get out of that situation. Maybe it would be a terrible relationship, all the conversations you gotta have, or maybe the legal aspects of that. Maybe it can be a business that fail and you finally accept the fact that this isn't working and I I gotta move on. Maybe it can be a move or whatever it may be, but there are some moments where we confront that bitter truth that I gotta let go, this isn't serving me. And you do all of this fighting, you do all of this work, just to get out of it, and when you're done, you're like, I don't, I don't know if I can ever build business again. I don't know if I can love again. I don't know if I can get out of bed. What do you do about that kind of fatigue?
3: Yeah, you haven't let go all the way because mm. you also have to let go of that story. Mm. That business is who I was as a person. That material possession is who I am. That's how I identify. And so, yeah, you might have letting go of, you might have let go of the thing or the scenario or the person you've created the distance between you and them to allow the letting go or allow the healing but you actually haven't let go you haven't let go of the story that you're telling yourself it's that identity clutter i am a different person without this my identity used to be tied up in that little name that was on my business card and it was an impressive one right i constructed An impressive story. And when I had to let go of that career to move forward, the most difficult thing was also letting go of that story. This is no longer who I am. But here's the cool thing about that. I was actually able to tweeze out a few ingredients from that. I was like, oh yeah, what did I enjoy about that? I'm no longer the director of operations. I'm no longer a regional manager or whatever I am, right? But I am a leader. Okay. I brought that forward. You Mm. can't take that away from me. That's who I am intrinsically, Mm. right? I'm a simple man. Oh, okay. That is who I am. It doesn't mean that I don't embrace some complexities from time to time. Sure, I do. But at my core, I'm simple. And so who am I as a person? If you really know who Mm. you are, one of the ways you get to know that is by really understanding what you desire. Because we are, at the end of the day, what we desire. If I understand who I am, it makes it so much easier to let go of the stories that are no longer empowering me. Here's a question from Mike on TikTok.
4: In response to your recent TikTok video, I think that constantly asking, would the best version of me be doing this, undermines the power and necessity of building experiences through mistakes. Don't we need to make mistakes to build the best version of ourselves?
3: Yes, In fact, even your best self will make mistakes. Mm. We need to delineate, though, between mistakes and bad decisions. Yeah, you're going to screw some stuff up. You're going to make some mistakes. And love that, right? Be willing to let go of the mistake right away. But there's a difference between the mistake and the bad decision. If I am taking a test and I've got a Scantron form here in front of me, and the answer was B, but I filled in the C bubble. Oh, I thought it was C. Oops, made a mistake. Well, now I know for next time. The correct answer was actually C. The Constitution was in 1776, not 1774. All right, I made a mistake. Not a big deal. I now know, and with that new information, it makes it easy to let go of the old mistake, the bad information, the incorrect information, right? A bad decision is a little bit different, or a poor decision. We often hear, like, a, a politician will cheat on his wife, I say, oh, I made a mistake. No, you didn't. You didn't like slip and fall, and all of a sudden you're inside someone else. I was on my way to the grocery store and blacked
2: out and woke up next to somebody else in bed is what it sounds like. That's that's what
3: they say. Oh my stars. You made a bad By the way, de- just click click that, clip that and TikTok. It. <laughs> Sorry, man. You made a bad decision. You made a poor decision that the best version of you wouldn't do. So here's the distinction. Would the best version of me still make a mistake on the Scantron? Yes, because I am not flawless, and I'm not encouraging anyone to be flawless. I didn't say, what would the flawless version of you do? What would the flawless version of me do? Because that's not something I aspire toward. I aspire to make the mistakes, learn from those mistakes, so I can build on those. That's how I grow in a meaningful way. However, The best version of me isn't going to make those bad decisions. The best version of me isn't going to eat the empty calories that make me obese or sick or add disease or dysfunction to my body. The best version of me is not going to consume material possessions that don't actually add value to my life. Yeah. The best version of me is going to be considerate. The best version of me is going to be loving but the best version of me is also flawed. And so yes, I'm going to make some mistakes, Mm. but the best version of me does not make those poor decisions.
2: Yeah, you know, the the funny thing about a lot of self-help platitudes is there's always a way to interpret them that makes it very helpful. And there's always a way to interpret them that makes it self-destructive. And so when people ask me questions like, hey, should I follow that advice? My question to them is how are you hearing it? Are you hearing it in a way that makes it life-giving for you to follow it? Go for it. If you're hearing it in a way that makes it self-destructive for you to follow it, I don't care what author so-and-so or doctor so-and-so says, don't destroy it in the name of following someone else's advice. And so when it comes to things like that phrase, the best version of yourself or do your best or give it your best, I know there are a lot of people out there who sometimes feel stressed out, but like, I can't always give my best. I can't always be my best. And if that's how you're hearing it, please don't give your best. That's a very unhealthy thing to do. Here's another way to hear it that you don't have to subscribe to, but it might give you another option. We can think about things like perfection in an absolute sense or in a relative sense. In an absolute sense, we can say, being your best is the ideal version of you. So in five years, if I'm lucky enough to be alive, I imagine I'm gonna be wiser than the person that I am today. I'm gonna be more experienced than the person I am today. And that guy is going to be better than this guy right here. I have no access to my absolute best self because he's still unfolding. But relatively speaking, The best version of me is based on what I know now, based on what my values are today, knowing that they will evolve in unpredictable ways. What is that form of good? What is that form of healthy living that is most accessible, most reasonable, most feasible for for me today? And then I choose to do that, not because I believe that's what my ideal self will do, because I don't know that guy yet. I haven't become that guy yet. I need today's mistakes in order to become my ideal self. But today's mistakes are based on what I think I know today. And so yeah. it takes a little faith to, to think in those terms, but you don't have to be your absolute best. But if you have a day where it, like you just feel like crap and things are really difficult and all you can do is, is you know half of what everyone else could do, well, that's your best. That's relatively the best for you.
3: What I'm hearing you say, and I know you wouldn't posit it this way, but I would. Embrace being a hypocrite. Mm. Because being a hypocrite means that you have an ideal best version of yourself that you're not always going to be able to meet. Being a hypocrite means that I have something to be a hypocrite about. And sometimes it's okay to challenge me on that because What happens if I don't have an ideal self? I can't be a hypocrite ever. If I don't have an ideal that I see, oh yeah, what would the best version of me do? But then I do something else. Well, if I I don't have that, then there's nothing to compare what I'm doing right now toward. So what would the best version of me do is not a prescription. It's not "Here's, here's how you should live. It's not even a rhetorical question. It's an actual question. Would the best version of me sleep in today? And sometimes, actually today, for me, the answer was yes to that. I rarely sleep in, but lately I've been sleeping in a lot more, going through a different stage of healing with my gut, and it's required a whole lot more sleep for me. Yeah. So the best version of me might sleep in today. It's not a rhetorical question. Would the best version of you sleep in today? As then, the answer is always no, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm not Jocko Willink, and, yeah. and you have to be up at 4 a.m. every day. That's a prescription. <clears throat> And those prescriptions can be helpful for some people on a mechanical or perfunctory level. But when it comes to deep questions of the heart, of the soul, of the self, recognize that you're going to be a hypocrite. But that, that hypocr- the hypocrisy, that delta between where you are and where you want to be, shows you the gap and where you need to go. In Mamba
2: Mentality, Kobe Bryant wrote how he always gave his best at every game because each night there were different people there who came just to see him play and he didn't want to sell any of them short. He wanted to give them something that they were paying for. But guess what? Not every night was a 70 point game for Kobe. Not every night was a 30-point game for Kobe. He had a lot of games where he didn't do what we might consider to be his greatest performance, but he always gave his best each night. And sometimes that looks differently. Sometimes you're sick. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're injured. What does best look like for you on that day?
3: Yeah, the best version of Kobe would show up. The best version of Kobe is also going to miss most of his shots. And you think about it that way, hmm. the best version of you is still going to make mistakes most of the time, but that's still the best version of you. Alabama, what time is it?
4: You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok.
3: Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok and Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter, which is now called X. Also, this platform threads we're on now. At The Minimalists is our handle. Now, during the lightning round, We each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We'll put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Jennifer has a question for us.
4: Do lower-income folks tend to spend more frivolously than higher-income folks on luxury goods such as shoes, cars, jewelry, and clothes? I sometimes feel like people are trying to prove something to others by how much they can afford, even when they really can't. I fully realize that rich people also buy lots of excessive things, but I'm just curious what you guys think of this.
3: Jennifer, we definitely call this signaling, but I'd like to hear what TK has to say about this. You got something pithy for us, TK? Yeah, um, the wastefulness of the rich is a
2: luxury that the poor cannot afford. You know, people often ask, isn't minimalism just for people that have more cash than they'll ever need and can afford to accumulate a lot of clutter? Not necessarily, because the inability the inability to afford a thing doesn't equate to the power to avoid a thing. You still have to live in a world that's showing you a bunch of things that although you can't afford is telling you you are not enough if you lack possession of these things. In addition to that, there are so many people that are eager to exploit you and they're searching for ways to make it easier for you to buy the things that you can't afford at the low, low cost of your freedom, your flexibility, and your future. So just because you have lower income doesn't mean you have lower vulnerability because people that are poor don't just lack access to capital, they often lack access to support networks, access to mentorship, access to the education, to make powerful and important life-giving decisions. And so many people who are rich can afford to be reckless and they can afford to ignore the price tags and make bad decisions. When you're poor, you not only have an inability to afford a lot of luxury goods, but you also have an inability to afford to make stupid decisions because you don't get away with it. And so I think it's a tragedy and it's why The message of minimalism and simplicity truly is for everybody, especially the people that can't afford the traditional forms of clutter.
3: I had to learn this the hard way. Give me 60 seconds, Professor Sean. I got something pithy for you, and then I want to unpack it together. Mine's the inverse of what you were talking about, TK. Rich people are not immune to the poverty mindset. Mm. I grew up really poor in a home that was filled with dysfunction, food stamps, government assistance. But also, we had been evicted a few times, and we just lived paycheck to paycheck. Often, we didn't have a paycheck. And so, it made living really difficult. And I thought the reason we were so unhappy growing up is we didn't have much money. And so, when I turned 18, I went out and I got that corporate job, and I started making some good money. By age 19, I was making $50,000 a year. I was paying my mom's rent, but I still had a poverty mindset. I carried forward many of the habits from my childhood. I was spending more money than I made. I was broke. I made really good money. I started making even more money, but I was spending toward the next promotion. I was spending money I didn't have, Mm. charging it to credit cards, to impress people I didn't like with things I didn't need. In fact, those things often got in the way of living meaningfully. So I've got this article here that I wanted to run by you real quick. Our good friend, Dave Ramsey, we'll put a link to this in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. 25 things poor people waste money on. I wonder how many of these I wasted money on when I was growing up really poor. Number one, designer baby clothes. Well, I didn't have a baby, so thankfully, (laughs) I didn't buy any designer baby clothes. Infants quickly outgrow their clothes, investing in inexpensive inexpensive designer clothes where for babies can be unnecessary uh, expense. And so let's talk about this real quick. In fact, we'll go through a few of these. We're often buying things to signal. And I think that's what Jennifer's talking about here. Look how together my baby is. My baby has become an accessory that I've accessorized with more accessories, right? But of course, a baby has never complained that they didn't have the Tommy Hilfiger or the Louis Vuitton um, uh, outfit. Expensive coffees. Yeah, I think that's true. I I I often bought things that uh, I spent money on coffee all the time. And there's nothing wrong with buying coffee, but if I don't have the money for it, it's probably not the best use of that money to go and buy a $5 cup of coffee across the street when I can make it at home for 50 cents. Trendy clothes. This was a big one where I grew up. I have friends who had a $1,000 outfit on who were taking the bus. Not that there's anything wrong with taking the bus. I think it's great. But they weren't taking the bus because they wanted to take the bus. They couldn't afford a car. But clearly they could afford the car but they just didn't have a $1,000 jacket on. That's enough to buy the a beater by, by yourself, right? New cars instead of used cars. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Luxury apartments, high-end makeup, pre-made meals, high-cost mobile service plans, unnecessary tech upgrades, expensive vacations, furniture on credit cards. Well, you know me, if you have to charge it to a credit card, you can't afford it. If you have to charge something to a credit card, by definition, you can't afford it. It doesn't mean you're evil. It doesn't mean you're bad. But if you can't afford something, why punish your future self in order to acquire that impulse purchase right now? Expensive cable packages, impulse of purchase, high interest credit cards, unused gym memberships, dining out frequently, alcohol and cigarettes. Yeah, I'll tell you that. Where I grew up, everyone drank and smoked. Everyone. We grew up in a really poor neighborhood. Everyone smoked. Everyone drank. Why is that? So I'm of the opinion that
2: rich people do all all these things too. Yes. Like, I I don't think stupidity and sin, if I can use that word, and shortcomings respect economic boundary lines at all. Right. Um, richer people have a superior ability to conceal it, to insulate themselves from the ordinary consequences that are baked into things, to bail themselves out, or they've got a longer um, uh, amount of runway to where they can be irresponsible for a longer period of time before the signs start to show up. Whereas if all you got is five bucks and you spend it on a $5 cup of coffee, man, that really hurts. You yes. got a lot of money. A $5 coffee ain't necessarily a better decision just because you have a lot of money. It still might be a waste. It's just, you know, you're not going to feel that pain. So I think, I think everybody makes these kinds of decisions. But, you know, I, I've seen a lot of scenarios where people go into like, let's say, inner city schools, right? And they say things like, you're wearing a $200 pair of gym shoes. You need to be spending that money on a stock market. imagine for a minute, imagine for a minute, there's a homeless guy that's asking you for uh, $10, right? And you give him $10 and he goes to buy some booze and you're like, dude, what are you doing? You need to be spending that on stocks. (laughs) Well, he's probably going to look to you and be like, what? Like that doesn't even feel accessible to him, right? But he does have pain that he needs to medicate. And in terms of what feels accessible to him, in terms of what he knows and his network and what his options are, going through the steps to get that bottle of booze, I got the skill set, I got the connections, I got the means to do it, no difficulty there. But all the things you're telling him that he ought to do with that $10, it feels like another world. It feels like he has to learn Greek just to even begin. And, you know, when you look at somebody that has the $200 pair of shoes I'm not saying that's the best decision, but we got to understand psychologically, sociologically why that happens. Part of why that happens is because it's a valuable signal in that context. Mm -hmm. In those contexts, sometimes what you wear and don't wear can determine whether or not you get bullied. What you wear and don't wear can determine your ranking in the social hierarchy, how many privileges you get, how much support you get, how much protection you get, how many friends you get to have. And those kinds of things are important for mental health. So we don't have to say this is the best way to do something in order to paint an empathetic picture as to why people do it, given what they have access to. And so I just think it's the kind of thing where people do it because it serves as a valuable economic signal, as a valuable social tool within this world of
3: what they have access to and what they know how to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. What you're saying is, what I started with that pithy answer is no one's immune to that poverty mindset, right? Yeah. And you're right. That $5 cup of coffee, if a rich person buys it, they actually might just be buying some time for them. It's worth more to them to not have to make it on their own, right? But when I was really poor and when I left the corporate world, I became poor again. I made $23,000 that first year, but I was more financially stable because I started making better decisions. I started thinking about it. And ultimately what we're talking about here is when we don't think about the decisions that we make, when we're not intentional, it's easy to to be wasteful. If we're not thinking about it, quite often what's happening is everyone else is making those decisions for us. I should have these $200 shoes. I should have this $1,000 jacket or whatever it is. It doesn't make you evil or wrong, but if you want to stay stuck in that cycle, well, continue to be unintentional with the purchasing decisions that you make. We're going to check in with the live stream question here in a moment. First Friday of every month, we do the Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom with the minimalist. Anyone who subscribes to the video version of the private podcast hops on a zoom call with us we also record it if you want to watch it after the fact as well and you can hop on there you can just be a fly on the wall you can turn your camera off if you want or you can come on camera with us and we can have a beautiful conversation together the first friday of every month patreon.com slash the minimalist we'll check in with one of the questions from that in a moment but first real quick for right here right now here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist's I have a free ebook out there. It's called 15 Ways to Write Better. I teach a writing class. It's called How to Write Better. I've been teaching it for over a dozen years now. And inevitably, people come to me and say, I just want to learn how to write better. And I teach this class two or sometimes three times a year. And I say, if you give me 30 days, I will show you how to write better. I'm not going to turn you into... Uh, David Foster Wallace or Jonathan Friends, and or Mary Carr necessarily, but I will so radically improve your writing. I've had doctors take the class. I've had high school students take the class and everyone in between. And what I've learned is a rising tide lifts all boats. And I show people how to overcome the resistance and the obstacles so they can actually write something that is compelling to them. The final class of this year is on October 2nd. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, howtowritebetter.org. You can get on the email list over there. You can also download my free ebook over there. It's called 15 Ways to Write Better. If you want some simple writing tips and shorter writing lessons as well, you can follow How to Write Better on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. A lot of short writing lessons out there that I think you'll enjoy. In Alabama, let's check in with the Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom we have any questions or comments from our most recent Patreon Zoom?
4: We sure do. Here's a question from Elena. Do you have specific tips for keeping a space minimal but still warm and inviting?
3: It depends on what you mean by warm and inviting because what is warm and inviting to me may not be warm and inviting to TK. In fact, it might be off-putting to him. You might say, "All oh, this is stark or sterile, right? Mm-hmm. And so who do you want it to be warm and inviting to? When I'm making my home, I want to make it warm and inviting to the people who spend the most time there. And that's mm. my family. Yeah. And so the three people that I'm considering the most are me and my wife and my daughter. And then if other people find it warm and inviting, then it's a beautiful byproduct. But if they don't, they come over and they say, oh, I could never live in a place like this. Or in fact, the opposite often happens. The house I bought a few years ago, the kitchen is so hideously blue. if you're a Patreon subscriber, you know I've done some home tours and the thing that I hate about my home the most is the blue kitchen, but some people come over and they're like, I love this kitchen, and if I just wanted to appease other people, I would keep that kitchen there in perpetuity, but it's about me in this home, and I don't enjoy that kitchen space, so when I've saved up enough money, Mm. we'll completely gut and remodel the kitchen to make it warm and inviting to me and if someone else likes it great and if not that's okay too yeah i would say within the realm of what's affordable design your place in a
2: way that makes you feel warm and inviting and when you bring people into your place they will feel warm and invited because that's the energy that you radiate. And then you can show them that painting on the wall that they don't care anything about. And you'll be so warm and so inviting when you talk about it that they'll be like, oh, that's kind of cool. When people come to my place, I take them straight to my bookshelf because that's what makes me feel warm and inviting. And I go, my graphic novels are over here. and, And here's the book on systems thinking. And their eyes are glazed over. They're completely bored. They don't care anything about my books. But I'm so warm and inviting with my books. They go, man, I I like how much you love your books, man. That's kind of cool to see. The way people feel when they are in your space is a reflection of the energy that you radiate. So design it for you.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point. In fact, on the private podcast, every week we do a a photo minimalist home tour. And we look inside all of our patrons' homes, our own homes as well. You can see TK's home. You can see several pictures from my home. But our patrons show a bunch of different ways to make it warm and inviting. And some of those you'll look at and say, oh, that's actually cluttered to me. Or, oh, that doesn't have enough personality to me, whatever it might be. This week, we have a a living room, this beautiful living space with a lot of space for living. And I see it as warm and inviting. And I'm wondering if y'all see it that way as well. We'll see that over on the private podcast in a bit. But in the meantime, Alabama, what else you got for us?
6: Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Hey, y'all. My name is Kristen, and I'm a Patreon member. I have a minimalist insight that I've found so much value in, so I wanted to share with you. I've been on a minimalist journey for several years now, and I've managed to let go of so much stuff, and it's really felt freeing. But I've continued to cling to my hard copy photos, even though I've scanned and saved them and backed them up. Up until this year, I felt so attached to them. So I finally decided to commit to letting go of the thousands of photos I've collected over the years, going all the way back to my great-grandparents. One way I was able to bid farewell to these printed photos was to choose some of my favorites and send them to a dear friend who would find just as much joy in these memories and would want to hear about the stories. It was an experience for her to walk down memory lane with me. I enjoyed putting together a bundle of the photos to send to her for her birthday as a unique experience. I labeled each photo and told a story knowing that she's someone who will treasure these photos as much as I do. It allowed me to get closure from the many lives I feel like I've lived in these photos and say goodbye to some of the baggage I was clinging to. I assured her once she was done looking through the pictures that it was okay to throw them away. It was a fun and different way to celebrate life and I accomplished something I had previously struggled with letting go of. I have no regrets and it was healing in a way. I hope someone else can find this exercise as useful and therapeutic as I did.
3: Welcome back, y'all. Let's check back in with that Patreon Zoom. So there's a whole conversation that happens in the chat over there, which I absolutely love. People interacting with each other. And then when TK and I are pontificating for a bit or we bring someone to the stage or Ryan is there and he's Ryan really shines in, in these Zoom calls. I mean, because he's so personable and, and people love interacting with him and talking about trauma or anything else that's going on at the time. And he's so, not bad on the eyes either. Oh, yes. <laughs> that yeah, thank brother goodness Aime. he
4: keeps the camera on.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. So those are all filters. <laughs> <laughs> but Malabem, you got another question for us.
4: I do. This one comes from Violet. I still haven't found my people after 11 years in this town I moved to. I wish I could move back to the big city, but it's too expensive for me. How do I know if a community is still worth exploring before I need to graduate to a new town?
3: Well, I'm thinking of two different tracks here, TK. Number Mm. one is if I'm doing anything for 11 years and it's not working, I don't want to keep trying the same thing over and over and over. However, this happened to me a lot when I managed a lot of people in the corporate world, and then I've carried it forward into whenever we do our live events with The Minimalists and people have this question. It, it often manifests in a way where I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing to meet other people? Mm. And usually the answer is like two different things over and over and over. And they feel like they've tried everything. Oh, but I've tried everything. Really? What is it? Well, I uh, went to this like social hour, which I really didn't like. And then uh, I've been hanging out at the library. Okay. And you haven't gotten the results you want? No. So what else are you doing? Well, I just keep trying those things over and over again. I don't know that that's what's happening with Violet here at all. It probably isn't. But what does happen is we get stuck in a pattern. And how are you going to break that pattern? It's by trying something new. If you want to meet new people, you have to get out there. I've never mm-hmm. used a dating app. But I can't tell you how many. It's well, not true. I did in 2014 for a day used Tinder. Um, long story. We'll set that aside. But... <laughs> I have never really used a dating app, but I've met so many people at the grocery store. Well, why is that? Mm-hmm. It's not even a place you go to meet people. I don't go to the grocery to meet people. I've never gone to the grocery store to try to meet other people. But I met my wife there. I've met other people that I've dated there. Mm. Well, why is that? Because I'm open to the possibility of connection. However. I also don't need the connection. that's why the grocery store works really well for me, and going to a bar wouldn't work for a bunch of reasons. Number one reason is I don't drink, and so then that is and you don't have to drink at a bar, but like that's generally what people do there but also there there's a neediness there that doesn't really resonate with me. but in yeah. a grocery store, I don't feel like I need to connect with anyone and because I don't need it, it often happens but I'm Mm. still putting myself in the situation in which I can connect with people. Mm. If I just stayed at home in my office, I still don't need it, but there's no possibility for connection there, right? And so ultimately what I'm going to ask myself is, am I willing to make myself uncomfortable? And that could even be the, talking to someone about, hey, would you be willing to give me a discount sort of thing? What are those areas that are slightly outside your comfort zone that you're willing to put yourself in so you can grow? Yeah. You know, this, this is a, as I
2: listen to you, this is one of those valuable lessons you can get from an introvert because you are not only not needy, when it comes to making friends, but you're almost needy in the opposite direction, right? You're you're needy for way more alone time than the average person. And and as a result, you're like a people magnet. You can't go out in public without somebody being like, hey, uh, what kind of coffee are you drinking? I really wanna talk to you. Because there's something about a person that is at peace with themselves and in love with their lives that just makes them magnetic. It's like the dating analogy that you use. If you go to the bar for the primary purpose of finding a date, you put yourself in a state of consciousness that makes it most difficult to find a date worth finding. On the other hand, if you have at least one or two other reasons to go to the bar that would make that a good time, no matter what happens with finding any dates, you'll already you'll enjoy yourself, but you're more likely to radiate that quality of energy that causes you to connect with someone in a meaningful way. And I think when it comes to moving places in order to find your people, you got to be careful because the the, the people part is the one thing you can't control. You know, it's like you move in and your neighbors might get a new job or decide they want to do something different and they're gone the next year. You know, different types of people might move in and the people that you like might move out. It's really hard to orient it around the people, unless it's family and you got some kind of agreement or understanding that they're going to be there for a long time. So barring any situation like that, I would encourage you to think about it in terms of what's my place? What's my vibe? What are the types of things I like to do? And find spaces where you can enjoy being you and enjoy living your life, whether you make friends right away, or it takes a couple of years to really make friends. It's not that you want to deny your need for social activity, but What are those elements you can control? What's your place? What's your vibe? What are the things that you like to do? And go there. And that's where you draw the people in.
3: TK, I've got a few talk aboutables for you. The first one, I just want to do a debrief on our last episode. You were talking about Kobe Bryant earlier. His best game was 81 points. And I feel like you had an 81 point game last episode. This was TK Unleashed. It was unbelievable. (laughs) And um, I had a few observations. We were talking about earlier on that episode, actually. You can go back and listen to it, y'all. It was a beautiful episode, three hours of cordial debates and some disagreements, but never in a way that felt vitriolic, never in a way that felt insulting, never in a way that felt uncomfortable to me. And I was, as I expressed on that episode, out of my depth. These aren't things that I typically think much about. They're not, certainly not things that I worry about, I've let go of that concern clutter because I used to have concern about those things. I used to have the right answer to many of those things as well. And I'd like to just point out that I think this works really well as an experiment almost. You could even do this as a separate breakout. I was wrong. I was wrong about COVID. I was wrong about the masks. I was wrong about the vaccines. I was wrong about the political party that I voted for. I was wrong about my ideas on abortion. I was wrong about transgenderism. I was wrong about material possessions. I was wrong about diet and exercise. Mm. I was wrong. Now, I say that, and whoever's listened to this instantly conjures some images. (gasps) Oh, he must think this about that. I didn't say that I thought a particular way about any of those things. Yeah. So if you just heard me say I was wrong about those things, did it confirm your bias? Did it change Mm -hmm. your mind about me? Because maybe I think differently from you now. You don't know how I think about most of those items if if you're listening to this, because I don't talk about them because I'm really not that concerned about them. And yes, there are times where it makes sense for me to be concerned about them when they infringe on my own rights or happiness or freedom or comfort or on the people around me that I care about. Of course, I'm going to be concerned about them then. But that episode was a treatment of how to handle difficult discussions. And you talked about some things, whether it was morality or... Uh, what was the thing I saw you change destiny's mind about in real time? It was I don't so, think I changed this No, you did de- you there were a couple times this happened. Um, I think on minimum wage specifically. And I've heard him talk in different contexts differently. And at one point you're like, I'd like to volley back and forth with you. And he goes, I don't think I disagree with you that much. There's probably not gonna be that much volleying between us. And he got there because you presented your ideas in a way that he had never considered before. Or at least you articulated in a way that he had to consider them now differently. And I, I really appreciated that about the conversation because Destiny is a formable formidable opponent and you didn't treat him like an opponent. You treated him as though, hey, let's learn together. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why
2: Destiny may have said that too is because we weren't having a performative discussion where it's like TK will be representing this position, Destiny will be representing that one, and tonight we're going to see who is the winner, who's the last man standing. We're having a discussion, and I think many of the debates you might see him in, they're debates where it's like, all right, this is the pro-life guy, and Destiny, you are for pro-choice, but He's got some very nuanced opinions on a lot of these things that don't easily map over to a certain label. But sometimes when you're doing the performative debates, it's like you need to maintain a specific type. You you need to defend a a well-defined position. And so um, I think it might have been just a different type of discussion in in a positive way.
3: You're making me think that I want to write an essay about what I was just talking about a moment ago with I was wrong. And really Mm -hmm. stating, here are all the things I was wrong about, but without giving a specific opinion or perspective, because I think one of the things that enables me to do, and you've really helped me do this, TK, is not cling to a specific opinion and certainly not cling to an ideology if it's not serving me. If we're having a conversation like this, being willing to say I was wrong oh, it's so freedom, it's so freeing. It happened to me last night. I was buying a sparkling water at the concert and I said, hey, can I get the sparkling water? And uh, the guy hands it to me and I'm like, oh no, this is the flat one. Can I get the sparkling one? He goes, no, it says sparkling right here. I just looked at him and I said, oh, I was wrong. My apologies. And you could almost see the expression on his face like, oh, no customer ever tells me that they were wrong. Mm. I'm always the one that is wrong here. Like, well, no, I was wrong. And it's okay to be wrong about something as simple as that. It's also okay Mm. to be wrong about something that's completely life-changing. It means I'm not willing to cling to my wrongness. Yeah. And, you know, to to build
2: on that, I I don't want to save people from the experience of saying I was wrong where it applies. But there's more to it than that. There's even a lazy version of saying I was wrong. Sometimes we assume that just because we don't have an immediately accessible counter argument to what someone says, that that must mean our beliefs are wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was was having a discussion with someone and I asked them a question. They says, "Okay, I get your point. You're right. And I says, wait, there was a question mark at the end of what I said. I'm literally asking you a question. I want to know what your answer is. But they assume that because they didn't have an answer to my question, that means they must concede whatever it is I believe. And I said, it doesn't mean my position is right. It just means I'm asking you a question that you don't have the answer to. But there might be a really great answer to my question that neither of us know. So we should keep thinking about it. We should keep talking about it. I don't know if I'm
3: right. Yes. But you're willing to be wrong. And that's the spirit of what I'm talking about here. A willingness to be wrong, even in the face of Your own self-righteousness, feeling like, oh, I identify as a right person, a righteous person, a good person, a correct person, an informed person, a concerned citizen. Yeah, right. And I can't be wrong if I'm any of those things because then it chips away at my identity. But if your identity is, hey, I feel like I know what's going on, but I'm also willing to be wrong. Oh, how freeing is that?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and and that may look like you saying, "Oh, I'm wrong about that." Good point. And it may look like you saying, "Yeah, that's that's a good one." I got to do some thinking on this.
3: That's right. Why, why did you think that was an 81 point game? I I didn't take it that way at all. Because well, a few things. One is you spoke about things in a way that I think our audience hadn't been exposed to some of these ideas and thoughts from you previously, mm-hmm. right? But also, I felt like you you ran the show. Uh, someone like like Destiny, I've seen him mop the floor with people who aren't prepared. And you and I had a conversation about it beforehand. I'm like, hey man, he'll eat your lunch if you if you come in here just nonchalant and think like, oh, who's this blue haired guy who's gonna? No, it, it's he's obviously brilliant, and he is super articulate and super quick witted as well, and. I didn't. That's why. Also, I didn't want to treat it as a debate. I wanted it to be productive. And most debates aren't productive. They're entertaining, which could be fine. And I think we married the two in a way. Not only were you informative and well informed, but you were entertaining, and I was entertained by the episode.
2: Yeah. You know, one thing that was uh, challenging for me is I struggle with talking about these kinds of topics. Not out of fear. Not out of not knowing what I think and feel about things but there's this tension I feel. Part of me feels like, "Mm, yeah, the implication of how we answer these questions is so consequential that I probably should be a little more involved. And then there's this other side of me that's like, I'm so tired by how much these same old topics dominate and dominate the discussion, you know? Um, And so especially the, the politics side, I I can honestly say I've never been in a political discussion that I would describe as fun or that I, d- I would describe as I enjoyed it. So every time we talk about any aspect of politics, it's like, okay, I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what we're talking about, if you put some topic on the table, I'm going to be me and say what I think. And I'm going to be passionate if I'm choosing to be involved in it. But I've literally never enjoyed a conversation with politics. I'm not even going to say it drains me. It's just like, ugh, I. so many people are going to be talking about that. And I, I I truly just enjoy talking about other things so much more. So that that conversation was challenging for me in that way. Um, I I would have much rather just answered an individuals' questions about how they can create a more flourishing life. But talking about that, it's it's tough for me to like keep my heart into it in that way. Yeah. Um but it but it was it, it was challenging in a way that was good for my growth. And this is something that I'm still wrestling with. And I
3: like these constant or occasional. Deviations from the norm. That one was a deviation from the norm. If we do it too frequently, then it becomes the new norm, right? But stretching yourself in ways that allow you to think out loud, that's the perfect, this is the perfect place for that, especially on the private podcast side here, where we're able to talk about things that we may not always talk about in public, And it allows us to flesh them out without the concern, because the people who listen to the private podcast, the thousands of you who listen to this, you give us some leeway and you give us some understanding and recognize, yes, I'm not going to make some bad decisions on the podcast, but I will make some mistakes. We're talking extemporaneously. I can guarantee you every episode, there's going to be multiple mistakes. And I'm not just talking about me mumbling or stumbling over words, but I'm going to say something where I'm like, uh. I don't know that I actually believe the thing I just said. It sounded good at the time, but let me sit back and unpack that. Yeah. And episodes like the one we just recorded with Destiny, I thought were a great exercise and hashing those thoughts out in real time. And I was really impressed. You didn't change his mind 180 degrees, but I feel like you pivoted him 15 degrees in a different direction based on not your conviction or your righteousness there, but you set some facts on the table that he hadn't considered before. Hmm. And that was beautiful. Now, speaking of things that we need to consider, I have another talk aboutable for you, TK. Let's do it. One day, all of these treasures will be yours. It says, uh, this is a tweet here Boomer parents, one day this will all be yours. Grown children, no. no! <laughs> <laughs> and this is where we are right now. Quite often, The things that we want to pass down. Oh, I want to leave my legacy behind. And sometimes we leave the legacy behind through a bunch of trinkets, material goods that people don't actually want from us. So the picture you see here, if you're just listening to the audio version here, the picture that you see is a grandmother who has her china cabinet filled with a bunch of trinkets. And to her, they're truly treasures and so why wouldn't I want to pass this down to someone else who would get value from it? And yeah, you might want to pass it down to someone who get value from it. But forcing your value onto someone else always creates a dilemma. This happened when I was decluttering my mom's stuff. When I first flew down to Florida, that one last time my mom had passed, I had to deal with all of her material possessions. And I spent 12 days going, no. Well, why do I have to deal with any of these? Now, at first I felt like, you know what? I have to, um, I guess I have to hold on to some of these things. I guess I have to hold on to all of it. It has sentimental value. And then I realized like, wait a minute. It has sentimental value only because I'm sentimental about it. Mm. But her neighbor wasn't sentimental about it. The people downstairs weren't sentimental about it. The homeless guy down the street wasn't sentimental about it. But some of these people could get value from these things, even though I wasn't going to get value from them at all. And so that no response is like, oh, no, I have to do something with your clutter. And so are you burdening other people with your material possessions? If so, it's certainly not a treasure. Just because something's a treasure to you doesn't mean it's going to be a treasure to someone else. Mm. Yeah, the ultimate treasure is a life well lived uh, this post and everything you said
2: made me think about um, something that I just wrote the other day about museums and, and our, our life legacy. And I'm going to do an impromptu reading of this, this brief post that I think is apropos here. Entire museums are filled with mundane objects and ordinary things merely because those possessions were once owned, touched or used by brilliant, influential or powerful people. Here's the spoon she ate breakfast with every morning. Or here's the stool he sat on when he was a little boy. Or here's the cheap car he would drive to work every day, hoping it wouldn't fall apart. Or here's the rusty hand-me-down typewriter she used to write her first book, and so on. If these relics were a recipe for greatness, they would never be in a museum. Relics are in a museum because of the people who made them valuable. Mm -hmm. Museums collect and commemorate these things precisely because they know that greatness doesn't come from them. The quality of our lives comes from how we choose to narrate and navigate our own story. We can despise the ordinariness of our lives, or we can imbue it with the magic of gratitude, generosity, and grace. Many of the things we celebrate in museums were dismissed as uninteresting or unappealing until they became associated with the story of a human being who dared to reject the illusion of ordinariness and who dared to live with gusto. This is a power we all have We can live in a way that transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary. I hope you bring so much spirit to your life that people will one day come along and say, this is the little cup she drank her tea from. Isn't that amazing? And yes, this was the only shirt he wore. How fascinating. May the world never remember you for your things, but may it remember many things because of you.
3: Mm. That is so good. And... That is the heart of what we're talking about. When we talk about simplifying, when we talk about letting go, you can let go of the objects without letting go of the person, who they were. You can honor the person. In fact, one of the ways to honor them is to not continue to cling to things that will make you unhappy. Mm -hmm. Because the person who passed this down to you, they passed it down to you. Why? Because they thought it would bring you some sense of meaning or sentimentality or joy or would augment your life in some way. And if it doesn't, person loves you. They don't want you to cling to something. Yes, they might have thought, "Oh, I want you to hold on to this because you should get joy from it." But if you don't, they don't want you to cling to it out of a, a sense of pious obligation.
2: That's right. It's sort of like inviting your friends to do things with you. You've got two options. You can make them do stuff with you that they don't want you to that they don't want to do by playing the friend card. Well, if you were my friend, you'd go see this movie with me that you hate. Or you can involve them in those aspects of your life that they're genuinely excited to participate in. And it's the same with our things. We can use guilt and leave things behind and say, if you really love me, you'll hang on to this forever. Or we can say, I trust the life that I live. I trust the relationship that I have with you. And when I leave, You are free to hang on to whatever aspect of me that makes you feel like it represents our connection, even if that's just an intangible memory, even if that's just a story about how we laughed together. It doesn't have to be a thing. It just has to be something that's meaningful to you.
3: When I die, I told my wife I want to be cremated. Figured it was my last chance at a smoking hot body.
4: him a microphone
3: (laughs) who gave him a microphone chris rock raises
2: the scenario he says what if they find out a way to bring you back from the dead but they just need your your body they need your body assembled (laughs) do you you ever get afraid of that
3: (laughs) i got one more talk about it for one more talk aboutable for you tk this is the root of your unhappiness
0: Unhappiness is when your expectations of how life is meant to be going go unmet. And this explains why a a kid in Africa who gets rice— I was born in Africa, I was born in Botswana— a kid in Africa who gets rice can be euphoric. But a billionaire in a Michelin star restaurant in West London, his three Michelin star steak comes without the sprinkle of dust or whatever shit they put (laughs) on it, he will be visibly pissed off and complain. Because his expectations of the world and how life should be going, go unmet. So one of the ways that you can make sure you're happy, it's not Lamborghinis, it's just like having better expectations, reasonable, realistic ones. And this applies for relationships. If you have healthier expectations of your partner, you will have a better relationship. If you have unreasonable expectations of their perfection, Mm -hmm. when you are flawed yourself, you should expect to have a really miserable relationship. They will never meet the expectation. Expectation is the curse of happiness.
3: If you want to be happy, don't just have reasonable expectations though. Limit your expectations. Eliminate the unnecessary expectations. Don't lower your standards but eliminate any expectation that isn't serving you and is getting in the way of your happiness. That's right. And an expectation is different from a standard.
2: An expectation is an assumption I have about what you would or should do. And that that tends to get us in a whole lot of trouble. A standard, on the other hand, is a value that I have, and I choose to enter into agreements with other people in a way that respects and honors those values, right? So we don't have a mere expectation that everyone's gonna be at the studio at a certain time. We have an agreement about that based on a common value that we share. But without that agreement, it would just be an assumption. And, And you see this a lot, not just in terms of like, what we eat or, or material possessions, but where it really kills us is in our relationships. We have so many expectations based on what a person would do or should do if they really loved us. If you really loved me, you would do this. If you really loved me, you would have said it that way or you would, you would have never forgot that. And we talked about trauma earlier. It's like, there are a billion and one reasons for why a person can really love you and wouldn't do the very thing that you would expect them to do. What if they have an addiction? What if they have weaknesses you don't know about? What if they've been traumatized? You know, like you don't know all the different... What if they have a physical disability? What if they have a mental disorder? We don't know all the different things that affect what people do. And so if you can let go of those expectations and say, all I'm going to deal with is agreements. Whatever expectations I have, I'm going to make them known and see if I can work together with that other person to transform that into an agreement. And if we can get an agreement out of it, we have a peaceful arrangement. On the other hand, if it's just an expectation, I'm not going to let that get me into trouble. That that's that's a recipe for misery.
3: That's the insidious side of our expectations, too. Quite often our expectations go unstated. And then we make ourselves miserable or we make the people around us miserable because you didn't meet the expectation that I never stated in the first place. Imagine if I had an expectation. Mallory gets here every day at like 8 a.m. But imagine if my secret expectation that she should be here at 6.30 a.m.
4: Joke's on you. I was here at 6.30 a.m.
3: <laughs> because oh. I secretly
2: expected that you would want that of me.
3: Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks for finally meeting my expectations, Mallory. You're welcome. But that's, that's the thing. Like, and no one would get anything from that. Now she's she got here really early. She thought she got here early, but she merely met my expectation. How is anyone going to meet your expectation unless you form an agreement with them? But in order to form that agreement with them, you have to state what the expectation is. And by stating that expectation, quite often you realize how absurd the expectation is. That Why do I even have this expectation of someone else? Oh, it's because of the story I'm telling myself about what they should do for me. What is going to benefit me the most? Not us, not you, not our relationship, not our community. But how can you benefit me? Well, what else does that? A parasite does that. And so a parasite has an expectation. I'm going to take and take and take and never give. Mm. I'm going to make you sick with all of my taking. I don't have to give anything. That's what expectations do. Parasites don't have standards. They merely have expectations. I'm going to extract whatever I can from the host. I'm going to get what I can until I can't get any more. Professor Sean, what, what's this gentleman's name in the clip? Oh, Danny, do you remember?
4: Oh, I know this one. It's Stephen Bartlett. Okay, S- Stephen
3: Bartlett. So I loved what he was talking about earlier. Like the person at the Michelin star restaurant with an expectation can be absolutely miserable. I saw this last night during the Cigarose concert. Now, I surprised my wife with second row seats and uh, they were expensive. I couldn't afford the first row seats, actually. <laughs> and so they they were several hundred dollars for these second row seats. And um There was a woman who was in front of us sort of catty corner within 10 feet of me and she was sitting there just scowling and yawning and she seemed so frustrated that she was in the front row but she clearly wasn't center front row Mm. she was slightly Mm. askew and so it wasn't as perfect as her expectation was but bex went into it with no expectation she knew we were going to a concert and then she found out it was Siguros. oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I didn't have this expectation. And then we get there and they uh, start walking us to the seat. And it's like, oh, wow, we're, we're down in the, the lower section? Wow, how great is this? Oh, wait, we're not even there. Wait, we're in the pit? And then we go to the second row? We're seated there in the second row? She had no expectation for all of this. Mm. And all of a sudden, where we were amplified... Her happiness. But if she had the expectation the woman in the row right in front of us had, oh, something slightly off. Now she's discontented because even though she's in the perfect concert with the perfect seats, it's not perfect enough for her expectation. And by the way, while I don't know this
2: person, and I can't comment on this particular instance, for a lot of people, that is the MO that gets you into the front row. It's the ability to get unhappy real fast in a way that makes other people uncomfortable. For a lot of people, that is their primary form of power. My ability to get angry, my ability to be difficult to deal with, make you uncomfortable, make yeah. you squirm. You know? So that guy you know, who's upset about the steak and the powder not being on there, maybe he was miserable, but maybe he was also flexing. And so for a lot of people, misery becomes a powerful negotiation tool. And I guess, hey, if that's your joy, that's your joy. But like we talked about earlier, man, I don't, I don't ever want to give up my peace of mind just to give somebody else a peace of my mind.
1: Oof.
4: Oh, that's so good, TK.
3: Yeah, don't hand me your misery and expect me to turn it into joy for you. Yeah. Yes. We've got an obsolete object for y'all. You. you can send us your obsolete objects, also your amass it or trash it questions, um, advertisement suck segment as well. Send those in to podcast at the minimalists.com. Obsolete object where someone sends something in and say they'll say, Is this obsolete? Do I need to hold on to this? The picture you're looking at, if you're watching the video version, is from Amy. And we're calling this an excess of writing utensils. Ironically, this is on the heels of Professor Sean's pen tour, his beautiful <laughs> pins. This is sort of the opposite of this. And I resonate with this for two reasons. One is I used to just have a drawer full of too many pins. My current wife has a, a drawer with, I would argue, too many pins personally, but it's not too many for her. My former spouse was an eighth grade English teacher. Ooh. And boy, did she have a lot of writing utensils. Mm. <sighs> Well, let's talk to Amy about this. What did Amy have to say?
4: Amy said, Simpleton here looking for some helpful advice. All of these writing utensils are what's left after tossing anything with a logo. One or two pens, pencils, highlighters, and Sharpies have grown out of control over the years. I can't seem to pitch a pen that's in working order. Any advice or ideas on where I can donate or recycle these?
3: Professor Sean, do you have any ideas here? You're the pen connoisseur. <laughs> get rid of them all and replace them all with like three fountain pens.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, recommend that either.
3: Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'd, I'd keep every, or I'd, I'd keep those, uh, those pilot G2s, all those colorful ones. That's what we use in the studio, but I don't have an opinion about the rest of them. Here's what I do. I can just tell you uh, what I do. I would start with a clean slate. Um, I'd find a school or, or an organization that will take, 100% of these. Mm-hmm. Now, why would I do that? Because it's simpler for me to become completely untangled from the pins. And I start with a clean slate at home and here in the studio. We have these Pilot G2s. They're obviously not a sponsor. Um, Find whatever pin works really well for you. This is the G207. That's the, the fineness or the thickness of the ink. And I have red and I have black and then I have some highlighters and that's it. That's all that I need. That doesn't mean that's all that you need. You might get value from having different colors or whatever, but starting with a clean slate, especially with something as disposable as pins, allows you to identify, okay, what do I actually want to bring in? How can I go without for a while? And then I slowly reintroduce things that I'm certain will add value. And Sometimes you only figure that out through a, a period of temporary deprivation.
2: Yeah. Question for you in terms of like getting rid of things. Do you ever donate to garage sales? And what I mean is, do you ever have something like, all right, like a box of pens, look up garage sales in your area and decide to stop by and be like, hey, you think you can maybe move this box of pens for a dollar? Here it is. I mean, you ever did something like that? I've done it, it
3: once with clothing. I don't okay. have to do it anymore because of the neighborhood that I live in. Literally, people put their donation boxes uh-huh. on the curb It's just free stuff on it. And- Within an hour, usually, the stuff is gone. It's an amazing system because what's happening here is I don't want this anymore. I also don't want the burden of finding a new home for it. So what do I do instead? I'm going to allow someone else and I'm going to trust them that if they take all the pins from my curb or if they take the clothes that I put in the bin or if they take the old blender or the bread maker that I'm not using anymore— then they're going to use it. I can't say, well, are you sure you're going to use it? Do you promise me you're going to use it? Can you sign an agreement that says you're going to use it? <laughs> I'm simply going to trust them to use the thing that they take from me. Yeah, I trust is key. we are got Letting a minimalist out. home tour this week. I'm calling this one Room for Living. It is Sunny's living room. What did Sunny have to say, Malabama? She
4: said, I've actually posted my living room before on a minimalist Facebook group page. Although no one was mean or disrespectful, the overarching feedback was that it looks too stark and boring and that plants were necessary to have a welcoming living space. I definitely disagree and love my current space.
3: Definitely disagree. I'm totally on board with you. I disagree with the people, with the naysayers. However, uh... I, you and I really resonate with each other. I don't like having art on my walls. I don't like having plants in my space. However, I live with my wife and and daughter. And so when you go to our shared living space, there are going to be some things that are compromised. I'm not compromising my values, but I do compromise my preferences, my aesthetic taste to some degree, as long as it doesn't step on my, my taste, like, oh, I hate this, right? And I think that's where you are, In this, Sonny, you you take a look at this, and yeah, you don't have any plants. You don't have any excess. To me, this feels warm and inviting. We were talking about that earlier, TK. How do I create a space that's warm and inviting? Well, to whom? Because to Sonny, this is warm and inviting. To me, warm and inviting. Someone else on a Facebook group might say, oh, I could never live there. It's not warm and inviting. Okay, Are you trying to impress them with your space? Are you willing to make yourself miserable by adding decorations that impress outsiders? Yeah. Or are you creating a space that is actually warm and inviting for you? The most welcoming
2: aspect of any home is the excitement of a person that is ecstatic out of their mind for living there. And when you open up those doors, you're like, hey, come on in, because you're so happy. But if you fill it with a bunch of clutter, even if it's well-designed clutter, beautiful clutter, respectable clutter, socially acceptable clutter, because other people say that's what you need to have in order for it to be a minimalist home or an efficient home or a good home, but it makes you grumpy or it makes you bitter. Who cares about how welcoming the painting is on the wall if it transforms you into a jerk who cares about how welcoming the plants are in your home? If when people come in, they're like, how are you doing? You're like, whatever. And you can't smile and be excited about having company. Do to your place what makes you welcoming, <laughs> what makes you enjoy the space.
3: Yes. And it's when you come to my place, you go to the, the guest house that we have, which is where I live half the time. You go in there and it's stark. I mean, Danny has stayed there before there are some white sound panels on the wall because I like to declutter the echo in a space as well. So similar to these clouds we have above us in the studio. Can you move for the wide shot? Maybe they're there on the wide. I don't know. No, they're not. But uh, we just look like we're in a, a spaceship, a giant abyss right now. <laughs> but I assure you <laughs> there are sound panels in this room. I do this in my home as well because A, they function as a canvas. They look like art in a way. And in fact, I could see something like this giant... Um, uh, Panel on the wall here. It looks like an art. You could see that hanging at that LACMA or MoMA or something as a sort of artistic statement, right? Yeah, a yeah. blank canvas. A is rabbit
4: it. in a snowstorm. <laughs>
3: yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or or space for opportunity or whatever it is, right? But to me, the sp- space that's inviting and calming to me is is free of any visual clutter. Because I'm sensitive to that sort of visual clutter and also the auditory clutter. So I want to go there. And it's borderline a sane asylum for me. Mm. But that's okay because that's where my sanity is. It's my quiet place. It's my calm place. And it may not be calm to someone else. It could be sterile, but that's okay. I don't do it for them. I, I do it for me. Yeah. For our added value segment this week, I've got two added values. Malabamwe, can you hand that one to me? So we're, it's that time of year where people start getting sick. Danny, you and I were just having this conversation last week. And people, especially around October, late October, and then throughout November, what happens? Cold and flu season.
2: It, it's people purging themselves to get ready for Christmas. <laughs>
3: In a weird way, you're actually not far off. My (laughs) hypothesis around this is similar to if you had lived on a deserted island your whole life, and then you went to... New York City, you're in Manhattan, and in Manhattan, they have the trash on the streets because there are no alleys for all the dumpsters to put the trash, so they just pile their trash on the streets, and what happens when you put trash out there? You see a bunch of rats start to scurry through. They say that there are over 10 million rats on the island of Manhattan. There's a great documentary about this called Rats. That's not my added value, but there are a lot of rats in Manhattan, But if you had come there from that deserted island and you showed up, you'd say, oh, my God, we've got to get rid of these rats. They keep bringing all the trash to the curb here. (laughs) But that's not what happens. The trash brings the rats to the curb. And I think quite often that's what's happening when we get sick. We create an environment for the rats to show up. What happens in Mm. late October. Oh, it's Halloween. Let's gorge on a bunch of candy and we'll keep eating it through the next few weeks in November. And then, of course, what happens in late November? We have Thanksgiving where we gorge on all the food and the sugars and the processed carbohydrates and the pies. Oh, it's so delicious. We're putting the trash in. And guess what happens over time? The rats tend to show up. Mm. We get sick. We get a cold. And so one way that we can avoid that is by not putting the trash in our bodies. You can go back and listen to episode 408 with Dr. Sean O'Meara. What a great episode about minimizing fat, but also living healthfully by minimizing the junk, the trash that we put into our bodies. But also it's making sure that we get the essential nutrients we need to help our immune system stay healthy. And one of those that we are often short on is zinc. And I have read a couple studies now about using zinc, in a sublingual fashion, sublingual just means under the tongue. Hmm. And so I have these. They are not a sponsor, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes over at TheMinimalists.com. Life Extension Zinc Lozenges. Life Extension is just the brand. Don't think these are going to extend your life. Um, <laughs> but, well, maybe they will if you don't get sick all the time. But having, uh, this is one uh, essential central vitamin that we we need, zinc, obviously. But taking it sublingually instead of just swallowing zinc capsules is uh, really help, helpful for our immune system. Hmm. I've been doing these for over a year now. Anytime I feel just slightly, uh-oh, is that a little, little bit in my throat here? <clears> throat> uh-oh. You know what? Before I get sick, let me just here, I'll just pop it out here. And I just take one, throw it under my tongue, and I'll do this up to five a day. I'm not recommending you do that. Consult your doctor and your yoga instructor before you take on any health <laughs> regimen. Yeah, this dude's like the Mr. Rogers of zinc. He comes home, it's a beautiful mm. day in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't do it every day because you don't want to think, um, which is not a good thing. But if you're feeling, you're getting those six symptoms every couple hours, I put one of these under my tongue. And this is the citrus orange flavor. And I have not gotten sick. I've not gotten a cold that has sustained more than a day after starting to take these. So it dramatically reduces, sublingual zinc dramatically reduces the length of a cold I've seen in two different studies now. So uh, we'll just put a link to that in the show notes. And then the song you hear in the background right now, this is Gregory Allen Isakov. End of summer just hit. Bex and I had a beautiful weekend. We went to a concert, a cigar rose I talked about. We went to a sound bath the day before that. So it was a weekend of music. But the other concert we went to, Gregory Allen Isakov. Isakov. Uh, The new album he has out is called Appaloosa Bones. And the song you hear in the background right now from Appaloosa Bones is Mistakes. And we've been talking about mistakes today and how there's a difference between mistakes and, and bad decisions. And we use those words interchangeably, but this song is ultimately a song about the price that we pay for our mistakes and bad decisions. He's one of my favorite artists, Gregory Allen Isakov. Check out Mistakes from his new album, Appaloosa Bones. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Malabama, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields-Milburn with a slight lisp because I have zinc in my mouth right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: if you leave here today with just one message, it might be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all.
4: We'll see you next time.
3: Love and light to all.
4: I
1: call them Left me lost at sea. I turn.